At this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. This is God's Word, so let's hear it, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking God's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage that we read from Romans chapter 5. As we focus our attention upon the latter portion of verse 2, but once again, let's remind ourselves of the context here beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we see here as we've been considering the various benefits that accompany and flow forth out of our justification. Uh, We've seen that having been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God, reconciliation with God. God is our friend. God is for us, not against us. Uh, The wrath of God is turned away, and the favor of God is showered upon us. Uh, We see that in that sense, we have access by faith into this grace, into this favorable disposition of God, our friend, God, our Lord and King, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Judge, but also our friend. We have access into that favorable disposition of grace, and it's in that grace that we stand. That's what enables us to stand. It's what enables us to stand in the presence of God 
in prayer. It's what enables us to stand in the presence of God at the final judgment. It's what enables us to stand in the evil day. As we saw, Elijah was one who stood before the Lord in prayer and in communion and in obedience as a servant of the king standing at, the, at, at his beck and call. And therefore, he stood in the evil day against idolatry and oppression. Uh, and so, all of these glorious benefits that flow forth from our justification, from the work that Christ did to obey the law, to suffer the penalty of the law, to satisfy the law on our behalf so that His righteousness might become our righteousness even as our sin was laid upon Him on the cross. Flowing out of that, we have all these benefits. And as the Scriptures tell us, we're not to forget His benefits. He daily loads us with benefits. Grace upon grace through Christ. And as he begins to transition here, as we said last time, to this robust emphasis upon hope. Hope. Uh, he, he brings this to our attention at the end of verse 2. Having been justified by faith, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We've said much in recent sermons throughout this book about the Christian faith about faith in the gospel, justification by faith in Christ alone. The Christian faith is very important, but the Christian faith is inseparable from the Christian hope. And if you were to seek to demonstrate that point, you would only have need to go to the various epistles of the New Testament because it's abundantly clear throughout Paul's epistles Uh, We would include Hebrews there as well. It's a major emphasis in Hebrews. Throughout the entire New Testament, the Christian faith is inseparable from the Christian hope. These two things are wedded together by the the Holy Spirit in the pages of the New Testament. And it's kind of interesting in the book of Hebrews, you see some examples of this. Hebrews 10, verse 23, we often use this as a call to worship And I think we may have done that last week. But right there in the middle of that section that we often use as a call to worship, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Remember we said that hope is this confident, eager expectation of what God has promised to do. It's faith applied to the future. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And so Christian faith, as it looks to what God has promised to do in the future, exercises hope. These two things are not interchangeable, but interconnected and interdependent, inseparable. But in this case, where you would expect Paul here to say, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. And in fact, some people expected it so much they translated it that way. But the word is hope. The word is hope. It's not the word for faith. It's, it's unclear why, why the King James says faith there. The word is hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, as the Geneva Bible puts it, as basically every Bible, other Bible puts it. He's saying, yes, it's our faith, but 
faith is the substance of things hoped for. So when we confess our beliefs, we're confessing a body of truth that has not yet come to full manifestation. Uh, Galatians 5, verse 5, he actually speaks of justification by faith being something that we hope for. We're hoping for the righteousness of faith, not because we're not already justified, but because the full manifestation of this truth to all the world has yet to occur in the public declaration of our righteousness at the last day. Yes, we're unchangeably justified, but, but the content of our faith has yet to be fully manifested. And that's why our faith, the confession of our faith, is ultimately a confession of our hope. And you can see that in our membership vows right at the end. Uh, we profess these things, this faith and purpose, in the presence of God, in humble reliance upon His grace, as we desire to give our account with joy at the last great day. And so there is this idea of joyfully anticipating that which God has promised to bring to pass and to consummate or perfect at the last day. Uh, it's a confession of our hope, for He who promised is faithful. Also in Hebrews 11, as I already sort of mentioned this, uh, verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And you can see this as well in Peter's first epistle. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living, and here we would again say, well, maybe, maybe it's a living faith, right? He's begotten us again. We're born again, and by regeneration, that produces faith, and all these systematic theology categories come to our minds, and rightly so, but it's important for us as we study the Bible to look at the contour of the Bible itself. He has begotten us again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So there's that heavenly inheritance. There's that heavenly hope. You who are kept by the power of God, there's that eschatological certainty of our sanctification, of our perseverance, we saw that last time our Christian hope is not merely for heaven, but it's for history. It's for personal sanctification, which is guaranteed, perseverance, which is guaranteed for the true believer, and so on and so forth. First uh, Peter 3.15 as well. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for and we're thinking, well, it's time to defend the faith. But that's not what Peter says. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so there are these suffering, persecuted Christians who are suffering for their faith, but what enables their faith to, to produce the sort of love for Christ and the brethren that would enable them to suffer persecution for the sake of the truth? What is it that enables faith to beget love? Love, as it were, is the, the child of faith and hope. It's hope 
along with faith that begets that love that enables them to love not their lives unto the death, but to love Christ more. And so they need to give a reason for the hope because the people that watch them suffering are recognizing that these people are not merely suffering because they're theological wizards who've memorized the catechism and can make all these logical arguments and win debates, but there's something of hope. These people are actually joyfully suffering, rejoicing, and even boasting in tribulation because they're expecting that their affliction, which is light and momentary in comparison uh, to, the, to what is to come, they're expecting that that affliction is working for them a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And so the people that are asking these persecuted believers for an explanation are asking them not for an explanation of their faith merely, but of their hope that enables them to die for the faith. So we talked last time about hopeless Christianity, a Christianity that might recognize faith and love to some extent, uh, recognizes the is of faith and the ought of love, but has really neglected the middle child of hope and de-eschatologize. We've said that eschatology is the study of the last things, the future fulfillment of God's promises that are yet to come, and they've de-eschatologized personal sanctification, perseverance of the saints. They've taken away that certainty and eschatological certainty of the Great Commission being fulfilled on the corporate global level. All these things have been weakened because without hope, we're hopeless. But see, the cure for that is this hope that Paul is introducing here at the end of verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope for sanctification, hope for the Great Commission, uh, not just hope, oh, I hope it happens, but a firm, solid, confident, eager expectation of these things. But not just these things, but eternity. And that's what Paul turns our attention to here. Having been justified, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The glory of God here is almost certainly a reference to heaven. The glory that is to come. Of course, we see the glory of God in personal sanctification and perseverance of the believer. We see the glory of God in in what Paul describes in chapters 9-11 through with the advance of the Great Commission to uh, you know, the, the fullness of the Gentiles and to the, the fullness of the Jews. But, but ultimately, our hope, Christianity's glorious hope, you could say, the hope of the glory of God is in the world to come. And so when we look at this phrase, the glory of God, what we're saying is it refers to the manifestation of God's infinitely praiseworthy being, persons, and plan consummated in the world to come. The manifestation of God's infinitely praiseworthy being, persons, and plan consummated in the world to come. The term glory in Hebrew means heaviness. And that's why Paul speaks of the eternal weight of glory. That's a Hebrew uh, idiom coming through there. The, The heaviness, the weightiness the majesty of God being manifested unto His praise and honor. God has all glory. When we glorify God, we're not adding to His glory, but we're 
recognizing his glory. We're ascribing, as we saw in Psalm 96, ascribing glory unto him, the glory due his name. And so that involves his being, his attributes, the persons of the Trinity being revealed and magnified, and of course, God's plan as it eventually comes to fruition and consummation and perfection in the world to come. Paul says that this is a hope that every justified believer has. And I believe he's drawing here on something that is said in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 25, at the end of that chapter. It says, In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel, speaking there of God's believing people, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. I think some translations say, and shall be glorified. But you can see the connection here between justification and glory. The glory that is to come. Glorying in it and being glorified by it. And, of course, he builds on this later on. Romans 8, verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Using the past tense to show the absolute certainty of the glorification of the believer at the last day, which is, of course, yet to come. The eternal weight of glory. And you look at how Paul uses that word glory in the epistle to the Romans. Romans 2.7, uh, speaking of those who receive eternal life, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Glory there referring to the reward in the life to come. Verse 10, uh, speaking of those who receive glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Uh, so not getting into the full context there, but, but heaven, which is set before us, eternal life is glory. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And Romans 9, verse 23 as well that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So everyone who's been justified will be glorified and will experience this eternal weight of glory which is to come. This is Christianity's glorious hope. This is how we address hopeless Christianity with Christianity's glorious hope or hope of glory. Now, let's consider some of the things that we as justified believers are hoping for, not wishing for, but we have a certain hope concerning these things. First, the glorious appearing. The glorious appearing. And you can see this language used in a number of ways in a number of New Testament passages, but if you look at Titus 2.13, it's a familiar passage for many of us. It speaks of those who've been saved by Christ looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God 
and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here Paul, speaking to Titus, says that the Christian's blessed hope, our hope of blessing, you could say, and is this, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the word appearing means manifestation, unveiling, revelation. Something is discovered, something is set forth and revealed and manifested. That's the idea, the, the revelation of Christ's glory at the last day, the glorious appearing of Christ. And throughout the Gospels, our Lord speaks in this way of His second coming. Matthew 16, verse 27. After He says, what would it profit us to gain the whole world and lose our own soul? He says, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels... And then he will reward each according to his work. So this is the final judgment. Christ will return and he'll come back in the glory of his Father. In other words, he'll manifest the glory of the divine nature. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of his person. He veiled his humanity. There was nothing in his outward appearance that attracted people to him. He was despised and rejected of men during his humiliation here on earth. Uh, We see light shining through at times on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see after His resurrection and ascension, uh, there are examples when He appears to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and shines brighter than the sun, when He appears on the Isle of Patmos to the Apostle John, and John hits the dirt in worship and in, in trembling. The light that emanates from Him is beyond our comprehension, but it's a revelation of divine glory of the exalted and ascended Christ that we don't see happening, per se, during His humiliation. The glory shines through in certain ways, but, but the glorious appearing of Christ when He returns to the earth will be beyond anything that has ever been seen or known up to this point in human history. You can see Jesus emphasizing this again, Matthew 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. So everything connected with Christ is glorious. You've got the the glorious holy angels, the glory of the Father. He comes in His own glory. He sits on the throne of His glory. Jesus is weighty and significant. People don't think so today. Uh, People make jokes about Jesus. Um, People mock the idea. When we go out and evangelize, people are often sitting in the seat of scorners, taking things lightly. You see this in the parable of um, of the wedding feast. They took the invitation lightly. They didn't take it seriously. And so many people look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they don't take Jesus seriously, but this is telling us that when Jesus returns, it will be a glorious appearing. That those that have not taken Him seriously up to that point will take Him seriously then to the point of crying out for the rocks to fall upon them and to save them from the wrath of the Lamb. 
At that point, those who have taken Christ seriously to the least extent will, in a sense, feel the brunt of His glory more than anyone in the sense of wrath, in the sense of judgment. My friend, if you take this message lightly this morning, if you take Jesus lightly, understand that's just a temporary insanity on your part. You're going to see it and you're going to understand it. Every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him, whether they pierced Him literally with the nails in His hands and feet or the spear in His side or whether they pierced Him, whether you pierced Him through your unbelief, crucifying Him afresh by mocking, scorning, rejecting, taking Him lightly. You won't take Him lightly then. It will be a glorious manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told Revelation 20, verse 11, something that... uh, This is one of the things that, according to our confessional standards, just reinforces the divine nature of the Scriptures. Uh, the majesty of the style. Uh, Listen to the way this is put. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. My friends, in our own experience, what is larger than the earth, or the sun, or the moon, the heavens? Okay? The, the, the seemingly infinite bazillions of galaxies that are out there. This is saying that Jesus is so glorious, so majestic, so significant, that when He returns, and when He returns in that weight of glory, that it will be like everything else is light as a feather. Everything else that seems so important right now everything else that's distracting you from seeking the face of Jesus Christ so that when He returns, you're not afraid, you're not fleeing away. Earth and heaven are running this direction. You're heading in the other direction to behold the light of His countenance because He has returned to bring the redemption of your body and to, to consummate your salvation. But, but uh, all these things that you think are so important, they're not important. They're not important at all. Even as believers, the things that distract us from Pursuing the Lord, seeking Him first, communing with Him, serving Him, making Him known to others, these things are nothing. These things are nothing. They're going to be found wanting in the balances at the day of judgment. The glorious appearing, the the manifestation of His glory. And my friends, that's a comfort if you're a believer because guess what else is going to seem insignificant? Your sin. Your sin, your guilt, you say, I've committed this sin. It's a great sin, yes, but Jesus is greater. Jesus' love is greater. His perfect obedience unto death on the cross is greater. There's nothing that you can do if you've repented and believed. There's nothing that you can do that could be more significant than Jesus Christ who suffered and died and rose again for believers for every believer here, for every believer throughout all of history, there's, there's nothing that we can do to undo that or, or to take that out of the limelight or to render that insignificant. And that's what Satan wants you to do. But, but you need to be anticipating this glorious manifestation of Christ at the last day because as he even tells us, to be watching, to be ready for our redemption 
draws nigh. Christ's return for the believer is the culmination of our redemption. And uh, as I said, I just want to read this verse because it's so counterintuitive for Paul's writing. But I think this is exactly why he says it. Galatians 5, verse 5. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. You say, Paul, is that really what you want to say? I thought we were justified. We have been justified. Well, he's saying, yes, we have been justified. But you see, that's by faith. And we have to believe something. We've never seen Jesus. We didn't see him die on the cross. We didn't see his resurrection. We have to believe the testimony of the Spirit in the Word of God. But through the Spirit, we eagerly await for the hope of the manifestation of that glorious righteousness at the return of Christ. And uh, that's why we're one of the main reasons we're looking ahead to it. But this glorious appearing is not merely a glorious appearing of Christ, but it's a glorious appearing of the bride of Christ. This same word for appear which speaks of manifestation, revelation, unveiling of glory, this same word is used in relation to believers. And so you can see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul speaking to believers here, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So he says, we, speaking to the church, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you say, well, that's just you've been summoned and you show up. That is not what the word means. That's just simply not what the word means. And it would be a travesty if that's all that we gleaned out of that word. We must all appear We must all be manifested to be what we actually were and are. Because what you were, once you die, becomes what you are. I mean, it's sealed at that point. Where the tree falls, there it shall lie. And so, who and what we are and were in this life, this will be manifested. We will appear. We will be shown, either exposed or vindicated. One way or the other, we'll be shown to be who and what we are and were at that last day before the the all-seeing eye of Christ, the judge of all the earth. Colossians 3.3 takes it to the next level for believers. Colossians 3, verse 3. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. So you see again, Christ at the last day will appear. He'll be shown to be who He is. His glory will be manifested. If there was any doubt before, all doubts are resolved. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. Either through voluntary worship or through just plain... um, Their knees will be broken and they'll be forced by constraint, if you will. But everyone will know. But this is saying, in the same way Christ appears and is shown to be glorious, that even so those who are in Christ will appear with Him in glory. 
His glory will be reflecting off of us as the glory of the moon is really the light of the sun reflecting off of it. Even so, the Bible says, Matthew 13, 43, that we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Heavenly Father. His glory will shine glory upon us and reflect glory upon us and we will appear in glory with Him in our resurrected glorified bodies. You can see this again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, talking about how we rejoice through various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this life is the testing phase. And at the last day, the believer, the true believer, will be shown to have had genuine faith despite our sins, despite the fact that we'll give answer. As elders, Hebrews 13, 17, we're going to give an answer for the people under our charge, the souls under our care. And so there may be some rebuke and correction. Um, I hope so, because that's what a loving father does for his children. And I want to be his child, so he's going to rebuke and correct me. There's going to be something of that, some awkwardness. But on the whole, the last day will vindicate the true believer and will show forth his glory, reflecting Christ's glory, the genuineness of his faith unto praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can see this again. It's just all over the New Testament. Ephesians 5, verse 27, speaking about the church as the bride of Christ. Christ is sanctifying us with the washing of water by the word in this life. Verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's a beautiful picture of a beautiful church. The church is not like that in our day, right? The church has spots and wrinkles and blemishes and imperfections, and it's challenging to show grace and patience and deal with all the ins and outs and ups and downs of people in the church and church courts and all these things that are swirling around us. But we have the hope, what enables us to show love is our faith in the promise of God and hope concerning what Christ will do in perfecting His church so that we're going to spend all eternity as members of a glorious church, a perfected church in the beauty of holiness. And it will be our great privilege. And we won't mess it up. You know, they say, don't join the perfect church because you'll, you'll mess it up. Okay, But not even you or me. None of us are going to mess it up. We will all be made perfect in holiness. No spots, wrinkles, blemishes, no sins, no infirmities, no offenses and stumbling blocks. A glorious church will be revealed at this glorious appearing. And 1 John 3, 2 says, we don't know what exactly we're going to be like, but we'll be like Him. And He who has this hope purifies Himself even as Christ is pure. And so that hope that one day will be perfect in holiness, that one day the church will be glorious in total perfection, you see, is a motivation for us to be beautifying the church now. 
for us to be seeking through the washing of water by the word, to be beautifying our spouse and our children, to be beautifying the brethren, to be proclaiming the gospel, and to be instructing and and training in righteousness and engaging in the work of the church and being a blessing to, to our fellow believer so that we can see that beauty begin to happen now, that spots and blemishes and wrinkles can be reformed and corrected and through repentance and, and progress in the Christian life individually and corporately. Uh, but we're going to see the finished product at the last day, and we, we long for that. John speaks of that at the end of the book of Revelation, of the revelation of the bride of Christ. Uh, he says, Revelation 21, verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This is the Jerusalem above, which is our mother. Galatians chapter 4, it's the church. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, Now, understand, Jesus is not married to heaven. He's not married to the residents that we're going to take up. He's not married to a city. He's married to a people. This is not a presentation. This city is not primarily a presentation of where we're going to live. And so there's a city that's going to come down out of heaven and and, uh, be set on the earth. This city is the bride, the, the, the one to whom Jesus is married, his covenant people, his bride, his church. That's why it has 12 foundations and 12 gates, 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, the 144,000, all of God's believing people, the elect throughout every time and place and age and nation. And so this is the church. He says, I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Christ, when he returns with his bride, is going to showcase her beauty. Uh, in one sense, the, the wedding that will take place at the second coming will be all eyes on the groom, right? Unlike we would have in, in, in a wedding in our context where everybody stands and looks at the bride. But Jesus is actually going to turn our attention to the bride. You see that throughout you know, Matthew 25. He, he's continually pointing out the good works and, and the gracious deeds of his people. He's pointing out the beauty and glory of the church. Why? Because it all the more reinforces his beauty and glory as the one who washed her with water by the word and sanctified her and removed those spots and wrinkles. So it's going to be the glorious appearing of Christ with his bride. And let, let, me, just, um, let me just apply this. And there's, there's more that I want to get to, but I, I think at this point, let me just apply this. And then with God's help next time, we're going to look at some of the other aspects here of uh, the glorious body that we'll have, the glorious liberty that we'll have, the glorious residence, and the glorious joy. Uh, Let me make a couple of points of application here. First, when we think about the church as the bride of Christ, when we anticipate the glory that is to come, that is intended. If you look at the passages where that is spoken of, they're always connected with our attitude, our outlook, our ethics, our response. Eschatology and ethics go hand in hand. When the New Testament brings our attention to something 
with respect to the, the last day, it's almost always connected with how we behave in response. So understand that's the purpose of this. Now, what are the implications here when we consider the glory that is to come? Uh, Romans 8, verse 17 says, If we're children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. So the other children of God, the other believing people of God, and, and we have a judgment of charity toward those who have credibly professed the faith, the other people at the Lord's table, if you will, when you look around at them, when you interact with them on a regular basis, whether in this congregation or other congregations, when you're around other credibly professing believers and you understand that they are children of God, joint heirs with Christ, that they're the bride of Christ, that they're destined for a glorious manifestation, right? These are kings and princes and queens and princesses and and a royal priesthood of people who will shine like the sun, who will be more beautiful than anything we've ever seen in this world and who will be more godly than anyone we've ever experienced rubbing shoulders in this world. How are we to view these people? How are we to interact with these people? And I think it's intuitive that it needs to be in love. It needs to be with hope where we see problems in other people's lives. There's hope. If they're a believer, we pray for them. First John 5, assuming they're not apostate, we pray for them and God gives the increase. God sanctifies them. God continues. Christ continues to wash them with water by the word. Um, notice the way that Paul dealt with the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 2 verse 8. Listen to how he dealt with those that he was anticipating would be glorified at the return of Christ. In fact, we'll start in verse 7. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Now, do you think the people in Thessalonica had problems and sins and irritations and things like that? Of course. But as we'll see in a moment, Paul looks at them and he sees them in light of what they're going to be in the world to come. And he says, it's, it's, it's worthwhile then for me, it's worth it to spend and be spent, to give my life, to, to impart my own life because they're dear to me. He says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. The way which we act in the body of Christ, the things we say, the things we don't say, the way we come across, the way we don't come across insofar as it depends upon us, these things are important. Um, When we speak of the bull in a china shop, the church is a china shop, my friends. 
to an extent. They're, they, these are valuable vessels of mercy in the house of God. And Paul treated the church as a mother, as a father, in an affectionate way. They were dear to him. He loved them. And you can see that affection and that hope in verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Is that how you view the other members of this church? Is that how you interact with the other members of this church or credibly professing believers in other congregations? Is that how we treat people? This is convicting for me. It's convicting for all of us, perhaps. Our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing, do you look at other believers as those for whom at the last day you'll be rejoicing at how beautiful and perfect they are? That they will be to the extent that maybe you've had an opportunity to minister to them and help them along in that process leading toward their glorification. They will be your crown of rejoicing, uh, a sanctified boasting. You'll be amazed at them, not, not the sort of credit taker that when somebody gets the game-winning hit, you know, and that, uh, that dad from the stand says, good job, son, that's exactly how I told you to do it, you know. Not like that, okay? But you're actually basking in what they have become, and you're humbled, and you're rejoicing in what they have become by way of God using you in some small way. He says, you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, his presence, his glory is going to be reflecting upon all of the believing people of God, all of those we assume by charity, the professing, credibly professing members of his church. My friends, these are things we need to take to heart. We need to have these kinds of lenses. What good is it to be Calvinists and believe in the perseverance of the saints if we don't actually live as though the people around us are going to persevere and improve and get better and maybe outdo us in so many different ways unto perfection at the last day. Paul says, Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as the elect of God, you believe in election. Let's see it. Let's see it. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in our hearts. We cannot remove this hope from our Christian faith. We cannot de-eschatologize the membership and life and body life of the church of Jesus Christ. We need to be thinking of what is yet to come, We need to be anticipating the glory of our fellow believers and living it out and and putting on these tender mercies, humility, meekness, patience, etc. Well, lastly, application. Paul speaks of rejoicing in the glory of God. There is not just a glorious appearing, but there is a glorious joy for the here and now. Having been justified, we presently rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is a joy inexpressible and full of glory. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
It's not just that the glory is yet to come, but our joy is inexpressible and full of glory. Okay? Our, our joy is filled with glory. In other words, by faith and hope, that which is hoped for in the future is brought near to us. We think about it. We experience something of it. And, and, and we're enabled to see the reality of that eternal weight of glory to come so that our current trials and tribulations are not overwhelming. We're able to see even the greatest tribulation in uh, human terms that we could encounter is insignificant compared to the eternal weight of glory. Now that doesn't mean it's insignificant. It means it's insignificant compared to the eternal weight of glory. So it's not saying that you're going to deal with that grief, that loss, that uh, just tragic incident and difficulty in your life. You're not going to deal with it by just saying, oh, well, it's absolutely unimportant. Okay, that would be unnatural. Jesus wept. Okay, Jesus wept. But when we think about the ability to overcome that grief, the ability to be comforted and to, to... understand that it's working for good, that it's working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. To be able to rejoice in your trials in this sense that it's producing Christ-likeness in you for Christ suffered and learned obedience through that suffering. You can rejoice in what God is doing in it and what God is doing through it. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory, that is boast, it's a different word, in tribulations. Doesn't mean it's not a tribulation. It means you're boasting in it and you find joy and comfort in it so that you can survive it and even gradually thrive in it. As as faith is a grace that grows best in winter, you can overcome it and be more than a conqueror, even as difficult as it may be. And the way to do it, Paul says, is very clear. If you're going to rejoice in tribulation, you need to be rejoicing in hope of the glory of God that is to come. I'll close with this quotation from Samuel Rutherford. He says, Oh, thrice fools are we who like newborn princes weeping in the cradle know not that there is a kingdom before them. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the word of the truth of the gospel that sets before us your eternal kingdom. We pray that we would be looking for and awaiting the full manifestation of that kingdom at the Lord's return, that we, like your believing people throughout all the ages, even Enoch, as he prophesied concerning it, Even the psalmist, as he wrote lyrics concerning it that we've sung, even the early church and your people throughout the ages, that we would be looking ahead and desiring the hastening and the fulfillment of all that's necessary to occur in history before that day for which we long, even the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.